Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We are very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled An Update on ACA Compliance for Employers. Next slide, please. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole. And of course, if you have any questions regarding any technical difficulties regarding this webinar, it's best and quickest to reach me at email, nataliec at dickerson-group.com. And of course, there's always my telephone as well. This course has been approved by the California Department of Insurance for one credit hour. Our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck will be available for you to download within 48 hours after today's presentation. That will come from via email by me, Natalie Cole. And of course, we report CE credits to the Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. We have been instructed to ask polling questions throughout the presentation. And in order to receive CE credit, you must answer all, in this case, three polling questions. Your responses are recorded. And in order to answer the polling questions, it is advised that you answer them on, that you attend this webinar on a computer instead of a cell phone. And of course, if there's any issues regarding your regarding submitting your responses for polling questions, please email me right away. And of course, if you have any questions through this um, as this webinar goes along, please type them in the chat box in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. Now, for today's presenter. Today's presenter is Mr. David Fear who is a 43-year veteran of the employee benefits industry who specializes in, in alternative funding, flexible benefits, and group purchasing arrangements. He is the managing partner of Shepler & Fear, a division of Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. He is a former member of the advisory board of the UC Davis School of Healthcare Management and an instructor for the Insurance School of the Pacific. He is also the past president of the California and the National Associations of Health Underwriters, AHU. And finally, he is a 2015 recipient of the NAHU Herald R. Gordon Award as the Health Insurance Person of the Year. Currently, currently Mr. Fear oversees the Alternative Funding Division of the Dickerson Insurance Services located in Roseville, California. So Dave, Mr. Fear, Dave, that's an impressive bio. How are you this morning? I'm good. I'm good, Natalie. It's uh, good to be back. And uh, boy, that week went fast, huh? It really did. Like we were just doing this yesterday. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for that intro, Natalie. And uh, good good morning, everyone. And uh, welcome back to uh, Dave's Corner. And, and hopefully uh, the information you'll get today will be uh, helpful in your business. And uh, hopefully we can we can help you in that business. So without any further ado, let me uh, get into today's topic on uh, an update on the ACA of the Affordable Care Act, or for some of you, Obamacare. Um, what, the first question that, that we get and that needs to be uh, emphasized is, you know, where does the ACA compliance stand as of uh, this year, 2022? And, and I want to clarify for those of you who have not been paying attention to uh, current events, that the employer shared responsibility mandate uh, remains in place. This is the 
the mandate that will and we'll talk more about it. It has not been repealed. Uh, it is not. Uh, it was not uh, uh, thrown out by uh, President Trump or by President uh, Biden. So it's still there. Uh, that mandate applies to an applicable large employer or an ALE, as we call them, who who averaged 50 plus uh, full-time or full-time equivalent employees in the prior calendar year. And we'll go into some of the depth on how that works. Uh, it does require an ALE, an applicable large employer, to offer minimum essential or minimum value coverage to all full-time employees. The definition of full-time employees remains at 30 hours a week or 130 hours a month. Uh, it requires this employer that the coverage that they offer must be considered affordable, which of course uh, means uh, different things to different people. And, and in the case of the Affordable Care Act, affordability is uh, not what a lot of people think it is. So we'll talk uh, more about that. Um, failure to comply with the employer mandate can result in, in two different types of penalties, actually three different types of penalties. Uh, one is uh, the, the the 4980, the section 4980HA penalty uh, applies if uh, the employer is not offering minimum essential coverage or MEC coverage to at least 95% of their full-time employees. Uh, the second penalty is uh, the B penalty, as we call it, it from section 4980HB, and that applies uh, if uh, the employer is not offering minimum value coverage to employees who received an advanced premium tax credit, an APTC. And we'll talk more about that. These penalties uh, that are charged are not tax deductible, so you can't write them off as a business expense. They, they really uh, come right out of your profits. Um, and an employer, uh, the, the third penalty is uh, involves your annual filing. There, the employer must file annual reports with the IRS, which clearly indicate that coverage was offered and is affordable, or that they didn't offer coverage, and it, or it was not affordable. These are the forms uh, 1094C and 1095C that you've probably heard about. And failure to file these reports on time will result in additional penalties. So if you don't file the reports uh, in a timely manner, um, you, you're going to get um, you're going to get penalized there, and those can add up as well. So we're going to we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, let's go back to this affordable issue. The definition of affordable coverage changed changed in 2022. The affordability definition has changed from 9.83 percent to 9.61 percent of an employee's income. And uh, in 2023, that's going to change to 9.12%. So it's going down a little bit. Uh, it was higher in the past. It's kind of gone back and forth, but it's definitely taken a drop. This is the amount, the, the affordability is the amount that an employer charges the employee for their share of employee-only coverage. So here's, here's an example. You've got a full-time employee. You're paying them $15 an hour and they work 30 hours a week. The most that the employer can charge this employee for their share of employee-only coverage is $1.44 an hour 
or if they're paid weekly, $43.25 a week based on 52 pay periods a year. Uh, if they're paid bi-weekly, it's $86.49 uh, per pay period based on 26 pay periods. Uh, if you pay somebody semi-monthly, it's $93.72 over 24 pay periods. And if you pay them monthly, it's $187.42 over uh, based on 12 periods. So here's a chart that we developed uh, that, that shows just this. So an employer says, well, what, what am I going to charge my people? And I said, well, that depends on, on what their wages are. But, um, you know, if you pay an employee 15 bucks an hour, Mr. Employer, uh, the most that you can uh, charge them uh, per hour is a buck 44. If you're going to take a deduction out weekly, it's 43.25. Uh, Bi-weekly, 86.49, 93.70, or 187.40. So, um, you know, again, if they're offering coverage uh, to an employer and they're a small employer, where they have rates that are based on the employee's age, uh, this doesn't take into account that those rates are, are, are based on a person's age. It's based strictly on their income. So you could have a, uh, a young employee uh, where their premium is, is $200 a month, and uh, the most that you can take out of their paycheck per month is $187.40 if you're paying them 15 bucks an hour. On the other hand, if that, if that uh, same employee is say, you know, 60 years old and you're paying them 15 bucks an hour and their but their premium is like uh, $600 a month, the most that you can take out of that employee's paycheck is $187.40 a month uh, because you pay them 15 bucks an hour. So this can be a real challenge to some and when they set up their benefit plans, they've got to, uh, they got to keep this in consideration. So what about the employer mandate penalties for this year? Remember, these, these mandate penalties uh, for this year are paid or charged next year. Um, so when they, when they file their reports uh, and, and they have not um, uh, met the mandate penalty, they'll pay these amounts next year. But uh, these are what the penalty rates are this year. So the A penalty, as I talked before, that's where they're not offering minimum essential coverage uh, to full-time employees. That penalty increased this year up to $2,750, and that's prorated to $229.17 a month. Uh, this is, again, this is calculated on a monthly basis. There is an exemption for the first 30 employees in a given month, and I'll show you an example of that in a minute. And uh, this, this penalty will probably increase uh, in uh, 2023. You know, this started out originally back in 2014 as a $2,000 penalty. So as you can see, it's now up to 2750 and it, and it will continue to increase. The B penalty is a little bit more expensive. This is the penalty for failing to offer minimum value coverage to all full-time employees who receive an advanced premium tax credit from the feds. So they go to the state exchange here in California, that's covered California, and they qualify for an individual plan. And because they're not being offered 
minimum value coverage by their employer, uh, they receive uh, an APTC, an advanced premium tax credit, which pays for all or a, a big part of their uh, uh, individual insurance premium. Um, this penalty is calculated on a monthly basis, so it's $4,120 a year, but it's prorated to $342.33 a month. Uh, and But in this case, there is no exemption, like the first penalty exempted the first 30 employees in a given month. We don't have that exemption here. This applies down to at least one employee. And yes, uh, you should expect that this penalty is going to increase uh, next year. So what about employer reporting? I mentioned a, a minute ago that there are penalties for employers who don't report. And uh, this can cause some real problems. So I, I want to be clear about this. The IRS issued these, uh, has issued new versions of forms 1094 and 1095C with some modified instructions and some new codes from prior years. So if you think you know it all about these forms, uh, you, you're going to need to read the instructions again because they have been modified this year. Um, there are in the directions uh, on how to fill out the form, which is, uh, I think, 18 pages long, there are directions now for reporting if an employer is offering an ICHRA, an individual coverage HRA, and uh, that's now included in there, and it requires additional employee information that was not requested in prior years. Um, the dates that these reports must be filed are are slightly changed from prior years. And uh, here's a little chart uh, to kind of help the employer. So for plan year 2022, the, the filing dates are this. This form 1095C, which is the ALE coverage report, and that has to go out to employees. Uh, that that uh, report has to be issued by March 2nd, 2023. On the other hand, the ALE coverage report that goes to the IRS, the paper version of it, the 1094-1095-Cs paper version, that has to be filed with the IRS no later than February 28th, 2023. Um, if they're a, uh, uh, most employers are now filing this electronically. Uh, if you're a large employer with more than 250 employees, you're required to file it electronically, not use paper. But if you're filing it electronically, the due date for that is March 31st, 2023. Um, on a side note, uh, the 1094B, 1095B forms, B as in boy, uh, those are issued by a self-funded employer, by an insurance company, or a health plan. And uh, those uh, go out to employees and the IRS no later than February 28th, 2023. Um, the note here is that uh, you can apply, an employer can apply for a 30-day extension to file these reports. They have to fill out a form 8809 on or before the due date. And as I mentioned earlier, electronic filing is required if, if that employer is going to issue more than 250 uh, forms uh, being distributed. So that's the uh, that's the calendar of filing. And and again, uh, whoops, let me sorry. And again, 
if you don't file these in a, in, in, in a timely manner, there are penalties and the penalties generally are like, like $250 per form uh, and per employee. So if I've got 50 employees that were supposed to get uh, this form and I don't file it on time or I forget to file it, uh, the, the penalty is gonna be 250 times 50 employees. I mean, this adds up to a lot of money. So you gotta take this seriously. Let me just mention uh, here, here in the, uh, the People's Republic of California, they decided uh, if, even though that President uh, Trump had uh, done away with the individual mandate penalties at the federal level, California enacted SB 78 and brought those penalties back. Uh, and, and again, if you're a California resident, you must provide evidence that you're enrolled for at least minimum essential coverage or pay this personal, pay a personal penalty on your California state income tax return. And to collect that penalty, the California State Franchise Tax Board or FTB kind of acts like the US Internal Revenue Service. They, they not only collect the penalties from the individuals, but they also require insurers and or health plans and self-funded employers to file copies of those 1094Bs and 1095Bs with the Franchise Tax Board. Uh, if I'm an employer and I'm offering fully insured coverage, uh, they don't have to do anything because the carriers file these 1094-1095Bs with the Franchise Tax Board and uh, those are copies of what was filed with the IRS. But if I'm a, an employer and I'm offering self-funded coverage, they're required to file copies of those 1094-1095Bs with the Franchise Tax Board, just like with the IRS. And uh, uh, clear as I know right now, uh, the Franchise Tax Board deadline is March 31st, 2023. So there are some, some issues here. And, and I will tell you that there are about 12 states like California that went ahead and put the individual mandate back in. Um, so, you know, they're, they're dealing with this as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier the failure to file penalties. The IRS clarified that it will continue to levy penalties on employers who fail to file Forms 1094C, 1095C. That penalty is now $280 per form with a maximum penalty of $3.392 million unless uh, the IRS says that was an intentional, intentional penalty on, on uh, you know, you intentionally filed the, uh, forgot to file the, or didn't file them, which increases that penalty from uh, 280 to 560 with no maximum. Um, they did have, uh, prior to last year, a good faith penalty relief that was available to employers who filed on time but reported incorrect or incomplete information that uh, good faith penalty relief was eliminated in 2021. So we don't see that again. I, I, I guess the IRS uh, is not the friendly uh, um, people that they, they tried to be. Um, Franchise Tax Board also uh, penalizes employers $50 per each covered individual when failing to file those reports. So uh, they, they will grant a two month extension on a one-time basis. So those uh, the penalties there. So remember, you know, there. If 
I'm an employer, a large employer, and I and and I've got a, a offer coverage, and I've got the the uh, the A and the B penalty we talked about, then I would say you also need to remember the F penalty for failure to file uh, these uh, reports, and that that we've seen a lot of activity in that regard. Okay, so we come to our first polling question after about 20 minutes here, uh, and it's polling question number one, and the question is. Uh, the ACA employer mandate was eliminated by the Trump administration. Is that true or false? Oh, I didn't get my my Jeopardy music out. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, you'll 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 just have to sing for us, uh, uh, Natalie. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, my singing voice was terrible. You guys did not want to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, better than you than me, believe me. <laughs> okay, I will accept that. <laughs> <laughs> so again, uh, please answer this polling question uh, as, as true or false. Uh, everybody has to, to get credit. Everybody has to uh, answer the polling questions. The ACA employer mandate, employer mandate, was eliminated by the Trump administration. Is that true or false? How much time do we have? We have about 20 seconds. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up here on my phone my uh, my Jeopardy music. Just give me a minute. Okay. No so problem. Do our next question. I'll be ready to go. <laughs> Sounds good. I just want to remind everyone that this is one of three polling questions. So that means that to receive CE credit, you have to answer all three. Yeah. So you'll get to hear the Jeopardy theme song next time. Sounds like a plan. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close the poll. And I'm going to go ahead and display the answers. And how do we look? We are 65% voted false. 65% said false, and that is correct. That's false. The ACA employee or individual mandate was a uh, mandate penalty was eliminated by the Trump administration, but the Trump administration did not eliminate the employer mandate and neither has the Biden administration. Um, so uh, that's uh, that, that is a false statement. Okay, let's keep going. All right, so um, you know, people ask me all the time about, hey, I need to do uh, an ACA compliance uh, report with you and and um, you know when should I do that? So um, let's address the issue of annual ACA compliance issues. I advise people that in order to determine an employer's status as a large, uh, as an applicable large employer, that that should be done in January of each year. If there's a question about your status that uh, I think I'm too small or you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm just over 50. Am I still uh, an ALE, or can I can I back off of this? So I, I would recommend it be done in January of each year, using an employee payroll census from the prior calendar year. And I'll show you what an employee payroll census looks like in a minute. But you want to use the prior calendar year. So in 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 uh, January of 2023. You're, you're going to have your client generate from their probably their payroll company this employee payroll census 
for the entire 12 months of 2022, beginning January 1st of 22, ending December 31st of 22. Um, if the employer is a new ALE, if they've never been an ALE before, they actually have until April 1st to get into compliance without a penalty. Um, some attorneys are saying that if they if if they are if they started their business say early in the year and once they have uh, uh, start measuring the number of employees that they have on the payroll, if they if they're averaging more than 50 employees on the payroll as uh, and they've done that for four months and they ought to uh, uh, begin their plan uh, as soon as possible after that four months. Um, I tell people that, you know, that the, the way the law is written right now is that you can also wait until the end of the year, do your look back, and, and then you have until April 1st to get into compliance. But, but I have some attorneys that are now saying, no, they should get into compliance sooner. So you, you heard it here from me that some are saying, as soon as you've been, you know, have more than 50 people per month after four months, uh, then you should get into uh, compliance. But the, the point is, don't wait until the last minute, you know, work with your payroll vendor well in advance to gather the information needed to determine ALE status. So let me show you some, some forms and templates that we use to gather that. We, we have uh, we have a two-page uh, uh, gathering form here, and I think you can see this okay. But the first page is just a general description of, of you know what we need to do and why we're doing it and what information we're going to provide. Um, and uh, it, you know there you know we charge a fee for that. Uh, most most firms do. And then on the second page, uh, AC analysis compliance proposal request. We get general information about the uh, employer, uh, if they're offering coverage now, what type of coverage, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, do they have uh, full-time, part-time, seasonal workers, et cetera. And then this, uh, this is the employee payroll census template. So if you're looking at a spreadsheet, you know, you, uh, each row is a different employee, and you've got their name and their ID number, their date of birth and their residential zip code at, at the very least things in yellow are things you have to have things in green are optional information which is helpful um, and so if you can get all that from the payroll vendor um, then and, and then you'll see as you go along here we need month by month how many hours they worked uh, during that 12-month period so by month okay it can't be the total hours worked for the year it's got to be the number of hours they worked each month. And this is going straight by uh, uh, IRS rules. This is, this is the way they have said you have to look at this. So now let me show you uh, a basic uh, ACA analysis report. Um, this is not real fancy, but, but this, is what, this is what you should be uh, sharing with your client. On the first thing that, that we do is we provide a gross ALE calculation. In other words, this is their ALE calculation of all employees that were on the payroll. The, you know, uh, hundreds, thousands, uh, uh, you know, 50 to 100, you know, whatever. So in this case, here's an employer who, who um, 
provide a payroll report. This one happens to be for calendar year 2018. And month by month, it shows, for example, the total count of employees on the payroll. So in January of 18, they had 75 employees on the payroll. And the total hours worked by those 75 employees were 9,292. And of those 75 employees, 42 were full-time employees. In other words, these were employees who worked 130 hours or more. They would be considered as a full-time employee. And then, so the, there were 42 of them, and they worked 7,946 hours. So that meant that the, the balance of hours, the difference between 9,292 and the 7,946, those are the hours worked by non-full-time uh, employees, right? So part-time, seasonal, um, temporary employees. So they worked in this month uh, 1,346. And then the IRS says you have to divide that number, 1,346, by 120. And that gives you the full-time equivalent count of 11. So in this case, they had full-time employees of 42 plus 11 full-time equivalents for a total of 53. And then you do that month by month by month, as you see here. And in this case, the average for the year was 93.0. They had 93.0 uh, full-time, full-time employee counts. So this would be considered to be a gross, uh, this would be considered uh, an applicable large employer um, and subject to the law, okay? So that's that's the that's the news, right? On the next page, we we if they say that they have a lot of seasonal workers, and and we we see a lot of seasonal workers in the agricultural field or in the uh, you know restaurants, uh, you know part-time workers, stuff like that. <clears throat> then we run a second calculation called the net ALE calculation. And this excludes seasonal employees. And um, basically, the, the way this works is, if, if I'm an employer and I've had more than, um, uh, excuse me, if I had four months or less in which I had more than 50 seasonal workers, then I can exclude those seasonal worker counts from here. So in this particular case, this, this employer had 71, or well, 45. You had one, two months with 50 or more. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months. So unfortunately, because he's got more than four months of seasonal workers, we're gonna have to use his, his gross count, not his net count, okay? So this is a clarification that, uh, that we have over prior years. So once you figure out what their status is, or are they or are they not an ALE, and uh, do they or do they not have to um, comply with the coverage? The next part of what we do is, is something extra that you typically don't see in a lot of payroll programs, and that is, we say, Mr. Employer, let's, so if you are an ALE, you're going to have to offer coverage to people, but um, you don't have to offer coverage to uh, employees who are not full-time, who have not met their waiting periods. So we begin, we, we take that same census that we were given, 
and we break it into seven different classes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And those classes each represent a different type of employee. So you've got class A, which are active employees who are eligible to be offered coverage. They've worked 12 months, they've averaged 130 hours a month, and they haven't had a service uh, break of more than 13 weeks. So these are people that you're gonna have to offer coverage to. Class B are active employees and they're probably going to have to be offered coverage because they haven't worked 12 months, so they've worked less than 12 months, but they've been averaging 130 hours a month, and they haven't had a service break of more than 13 weeks. And then you have uh, Group C. These are active employees, but we call them improbable because even though they've worked less than 12 months and they haven't met the full waiting period, they're averaging less than 130 hours a month, or they may have had a service break of more or less than 13 weeks. You have class D, which are active employees, but they're not eligible because they work 12 months. But when we do a look back, they weren't at, they didn't average 130 hours a month. Um, and so they are, um, uh, you know, they're, we don't have to offer them coverage. And then these other three categories are inactive employees, employees who have been on the payroll in the past, but they might be rehired. And if they're rehired and they were in a uh, kind of a look back position while they were there and then they're gone and we rehire them, uh, they might have to be offered benefits again. So we have this class E here. These are inactive. And if we rehire them, they're probably going to be uh, eligible for coverage because while they were working here, uh, they averaged 130 hours a month. But they had a service break. They had a break of service under 13 weeks. So we rehired them in less than 13 weeks. And when we do, we have to continue on their waiting period as if they were never gone, but and they've been averaging 130 hours a month. So chances are they're gonna have to be offered coverage. Category F are inactive employees. That's improbable, meaning that if we rehired them, um, they, you know, they had service break of under 13 weeks. If we rehire them, they have been averaging less than 130 hours a month. And uh, it's probable that we're not gonna have to offer them coverage, kind of like this class C up above. And then finally, there's class G, and these are inactive people and they're totally ineligible. Why? Simply why? Because they had a service break of more than 13 weeks. And I'll give you an example. You know, you've got seasonal workers and they're hired um, in, in July of each year to, to pick crops, harvest crops and uh, they only work for about uh, 90 days and then they're gone. And uh, next year when they come back, they'll probably, uh, they, they still have to meet a, uh, a waiting period, but because they had a 13 week or more break of service, they have to start over a new waiting period. So it's just a way to help the employers understand who do I have to offer coverage to? So in this particular case, this employer that we was working with, they had a total count out of several hundred employees of 41 people that they needed to offer coverage to immediately because they had met their 12-month waiting period and uh, they've been working uh, more than 130 hours uh, a month. So boom, you, you got to get out there and see these 41 people offer coverage. They had another 13 people that had not let their, met their waiting period uh, but um, when they when they were probably going to be eligible, they probably would, would 
would be uh, eligible for coverage because they were averaging 130 hours a week or more. Uh, class D, these are the ones that are still in their waiting period, but they're not averaging 130 hours, so probably don't have to offer them coverage. Uh, there were no Class Ds in this case. Class E, these are the ones that we rehire. They'll probably have to, they'll, they'll start in, they won't start a new waiting period, but they'll probably be uh, eligible for coverage because they were averaging 130 hours a week. Uh, class E, they were not averaging 130 hours a week. If we rehire them, it, it, you know, low probability of having offering coverage. And then remember that one I said at the bottom there, in Class G, they had more than a 13-week break of service, and uh, there were 68 of them, and they, they have to start a new waiting period. So out of 177 employees that had been on the payroll, uh, they only had to offer coverage to about 41 of them. And so this guy was pretty happy about that. So now let's look at compliance options. You know, based on the, the 2022 penalties and, and rules, um, we're going to have a break, uh, a, a polling question here in a minute. Um, we, we then try to show the employer, you know, what their options are. And option one is, employer says, I don't want to comply. And so we say, okay, well, the potential A penalty that you have, you had, you had 54 employees that were um, uh, eligible to be offered coverage. This was a different group, not the same one as before. Um, and your, your penalty is 2,750 bucks uh, minus the first 30 employees, which means you could pay out $66,000 in A penalties that are not tax deductible. Um, of those 54 employees, if all of them went out and got a advanced premium tax credit from Covered California, uh, your penalty will be 4,120 bucks times 54 people. So that's 222,000. So your penalties are likely to be somewhere between, uh, you know, 66,000 and 222,000, depending on how many people uh, got a, uh, a, a tax credit or advanced premium tax credit. Then we show them, you know, what their compliance costs are. If they put in a MEC plan, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, they eliminate this A penalty, but Unfortunately, a MEC plan, um, they're still qualified to get an advanced premium tax credit because it's minimum value coverage that eliminates that. But MEC or minimum essential coverage does not. So they're still open here to that, uh, the B penalty potential, which we'd already calculated as $222,480. What was the cost of a MEC plan? For this guy, it was $74.11 a month times 54 people times 12 months. $48,023, which by the way, is a tax deductible business expense. So this is a, this is a, the MEC plan is a type of a self-funded plan that complies with the MEC requirements and it returns claim surplus dollars a year end. And I'm sure most of you have heard of MEC plans. Uh, option three is that they offer both a, a MEC plan and a minimum value plan. And there are some cases where that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the cost of a MEC plan is, is as I said, 74.11 or potentially 48,000. The cost of a minimum value plan we estimated is is about $324 uh, per employee per month. Uh, they would be paying about 50% of that to meet the affordability requirements. 54 employees times that times 12 months about $104,976. If all 54 employees decided to upgrade 
to minimum value coverage. So what this employer did was he, he put everybody on a MEC plan. He had that covered. Those who wanted to upgrade to minimum value coverage, which cost more money out of their pocket and cost the employer more money, could do so. And the potential ex, uh, exposure expense there was 104000 But of course, that's a, a lot less than 222000 over there. So that's uh, that was one option. And then we have a number of employers that say, I'm not going to put in a MEC plan. I'm just going to offer minimum value coverage, which um, is great, uh, except that you've got, you know, some of these carriers have participation requirements. And and uh, if you don't, you know, get the 75% enrollment or whatever, that can be a problem. Uh, that's why some of them will put in a MEC plan because they'll consider MEC coverage to be a, quote, valid waiver. So different carriers have different rules. So this is just an illustration of, of what the employer's expenses or costs would look like if they comply or they don't comply, okay? Uh, we're up to polling question number two. Uh, boy, look at that, we're 40 minutes, so we're right on time. And uh, polling question number two is, when should an annual a a ACA analysis be performed? Should it be done in December? Should it be done in January? Or is it either of the above? So uh, there's our polling question. and. Uh, let me get my let me get my Jeopardy music. Here we go. Okay, that, that, that was only 30 seconds long. How are we doing, uh, Natalie? We have about 20 more seconds left. All right, I'll, listen, okay, I'll play it one more time. Here we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, I think we're there. We are. Okay, so I'm going to close the poll. And it looks like 48% chose January. Okay, so January is the correct answer. Um, you should do it in January. Why? Because you, you need to have their payroll data through the end of December for the calendar year. January through December. So it makes sense to do it in January. Some might do it in February, some might do it in March. But again, if they're a new ALE, uh, they have until uh, April 1st to get a new plan established. So if you do it in January, you've, you've got roughly a, a, you know 90 days to, to come into compliance. So that's the, uh, that's the correct answer. Thank you for participating. We have one more polling question left. And We'll continue on here. Um, so here are some considerations for compliance. You know, what, what a lot of employers will do is they'll offer core coverage that meets minimum essential or minimum value requirements, like a, a bronze plan. 
They'll offer the ability to buy up from this core coverage to better coverage, you know, like a silver, gold, or, or platinum plan. And uh, a lot of carriers uh, will allow them to do that. Uh, they might consider adopting a contribution schedule that meets that minimum affordability requirements. Remember the 9.61% and, and have that ready for open enrollment. So that, you know, when they do an open enrollment uh, meeting, uh, they'll, they'll have that chart and they'll say, this is, this is how much will be taken out of your check based on your, your rate of pay. Um, it is okay to have set up employee classifications so that we, that we apply different um, uh, waiting periods or different um, contribution schedules based on their class, but these classes have to be non-discriminatory. So, you know, full-time versus variable hour employees. And, and again, variable hour employees are the ones that we consider to be seasonal, part-time, or temporary workers. So you can have full-time versus variable hour. You can you can ver, um, you can you can have uh, a class you know uh, salaried uh, versus hourly you know uh, uh, you certainly union non-union uh, um, you can have you know managers uh, supervisors um, uh, all other workers so um, you know you you can do that but and you can vary your contribution by class but you must offer the same benefits to all classes you can off, offer a platinum plan just to the management and everybody else gets a bronze plan. That's not gonna fly anymore. So if you if you say, yeah, we, we offer a choice of a bronze and a platinum plan, uh, that's available. And if you're, if you're in an e executive class and you want the, uh, uh, you know, your employer might say, look, if you opt for the, uh, uh, the, the platinum plan, we'll pay the full cost of that for you. So you can discriminate by classes, you can't, discriminate within the class. And then you can use waiting periods. You know, the standard waiting period for full-time employees, as you know, under, under the ACA is 90 days. But for variable hour employees, you can have up to a 12-month maximum for those variable hour employees. Speaking of waiting periods, again, the term variable hour employee uh, has is replaced part-time seasonal and temporary. By categorizing variable hour employees, VHEs, the employer can impose anywhere between a three to 12 month measurement period or waiting period, which must be followed by a one month administrative period, and that's followed by a stability period. They can use the look back method to measure the hours worked and any breaks of service during that measurement period. And variable hour employees who average 130 hours a month or more and have a, any breaks of service less than 13 weeks would then be considered eligible and must be offered coverage in that administrative period. So it's almost like having a 13 month uh, waiting period. And we have a lot of people in the ag business that, that are doing that. Uh, again, from a benefit perspective, you have to offer minimum essential coverage to get by the A penalty. And for those of you who can't remember, Minimum essential coverage only covers preventive or wellness services. It does not pay benefits if you get sick, okay? It, you, you can use an exclusive or a preferred provider network. Minimum essential coverage plans are all a form of self-funding, and all it does is exempt the employer from the A penalty only. Does not help them exempt them for the B penalty. 
you have some people that put in uh, minimum essential plus coverage. Uh, in other words, it, it covers preventive and wellness services, but it also might include some limited outpatient and prescription drug benefits. Most of these plans, again, are self-funded. Then you have minimum value coverage, uh, and this would typically be a bronze plan or a silver plan, et cetera. This covers all of the essential benefits. There's 10 essential benefits under, uh, under the law, and it has first dollar preventive uh, and wellness services like uh, a minimum essential coverage does. So that's good. So it's got minimum essential coverage built into it, but it covers the essential benefits. If you get sick, it, it pays a benefit, but you have deductibles and out-of-pocket caps that comply with the Affordable Care Act. It can be fully insured or self-funded. Uh, it can be an HMO, a PPO, an EPO, or an indemnity reference-based pricing type plan. And uh, by, by offering your people minimum value coverage, it exempts them from both the A and the B penalties. They still have to file reports each year, but, but they're exempted from these penalties. And then you have, uh, in many cases, minimum value coverage with a buyout. So you have all of the MEC benefits with a lower deductible. So a buyout from a bronze plan with say a $5,000 deductible, to a silver plan with a $2,500 deductible, or a gold plan with a $1,000 deductible, or even a, a, um, a, a really good plan, a platinum plan, sorry, a brain, whatever there, uh, with zero deductible. So you, you, you're starting to see this now with buy-up options. There are a lot of uh, considerations when you're trying to implement a plan and get them into um, uh, coverage. Uh, in this case, you know, what benefits are we going to offer? Are we going to offer MEC or minimum value? What is my contribution schedule going to be? Am I going to have employee classifications or, or, or uh, you know, different arrangements there? Uh, am I going to offer dependent uh, coverage? Am I going to pay for dependent coverage? They don't have to under the law. Um, is my contribution schedule going to meet the uh, affordability requirements? I have to I have to put together enrollment packets, and they, they need to be well written. They need to probably be in, in English and Spanish if you've got a, a Spanish speaking um, employees. Uh, generally, the enrollment packets that that we would do for somebody will have a cover letter on the employer's letterhead explaining what's going on, a contribution schedule that they look at to see how much their cost will be a summary of the benefits, an election form, and an enrollment form. If they if they elect to participate, they'll indicate on the election form, yes, I want to participate, and then they fill out an enrollment form for coverage. If on the election form they say, I don't want to participate, I waive coverage, then you want that in right that you want them to sign it and date it and you keep that in the file because when the IRS comes calling later, you can say, yep, I offered coverage to all my eligible employees. And, and I've got waiver forms from all these people and they're protected because you, you know that you did the right thing. I will tell you from a time frame standpoint, the minimum time frame to set up a, a new plan is 45 days if it's a fully insured plan and the minimum if it's a self-funded type plan is gonna be close to 60 days. So this is not something that can be done overnight. Uh, there are some administrative considerations here and I'm 
I, I can't spend a lot of time on this, but because uh, I'm coming up on an hour here, but uh, you've got to consider these things. First off, if you're going to, you have to have somebody who can track and monitor work hours. Um, I think a lot of good payroll systems can track and monitor work hours. That's good. Um, but there are a lot of other payroll systems that don't do that. Um, you know, I talked to somebody the other day, well, I use, uh, I use Quicken uh, payroll. Well, Quicken payroll won't do this. So you, you want to be able to track and monitor work hours. So you can, you can hire that out. You can hire a firm to, to track and monitor those work hours so that when people have met their waiting periods or lookbacks, uh, they handle that for you. Uh, you gotta, you gotta have somebody that can, uh, process the enrollment and the waiver forms that we just talked about. Uh, and, and generally speaking, you know, a good, a good insurance agent, a good, uh, third-party administrator uh, should be able to, to do that. But you got to process this stuff and, and make sure it's, it's done in a timely manner. You, you, need, to, you need to have uh, documentation of offers of coverage and waivers and enrollment. So when the IRS comes calling, and they will, uh, and, and, and they ask you to provide proof that you offered coverage to your people, you, you've got all that there. And yes, it should be done every year. It should be updated every year. Uh, you've got the annual reports, which are no easy task. There was a lot of confusion when these 1094, 1095 forms first came out. Uh, they, they can be, I mean, as I said, it was like 18 pages of instructions. And, you know, small business owner, they're just not prepared to do that. So in many times they, they hire out an outside firm or maybe their payroll company will do it to to file these annual reports and, and, and take care of that data. And also if they're required to, to file a 5500, that, that needs to be done. So, so who would do all of this? Well, some employers do it internally. They might have their HR department or their finance department try to do this. Uh, and that has mixed, um, mixed results, to be candid with you. Uh, they might hire an external contractor. A payroll vendor might be able to do this. An attorney or CPA firm might be able to do it, although, frankly, I haven't found one CPA firm in Northern California that, that wants to do this stuff, okay? Therefore, you see the third, third party administrators, TPAs, that are doing a lot of this stuff. They don't do it for free, they, they charge for it. So does the payroll vendor. Um, so there are TPAs out there that, that we recommend that uh, you work with. We are not a TPA. We don't we don't do that here, but um, we work with TPAs that do. Let me talk about the IRS for a minute. And and if there's anything that you get out of this, it's the letter 226J. It's a form letter. It's it's an initial letter that the IRS sends out to an employer. And what it does is it assumes that this employer is an applicable large employer. They're not in compliance, and it assesses uh, like right in the first paragraph of the letter and an estimated initial penalty. I mean, dear Mr. Employer, we believe that you're a, a, an applicable large employer. You're not in compliance and you owe us $1.5 million. And, and I'm not making up that number at all. Uh, they generally require a response within 30 days. The employer cannot set it aside. Just say, this is all BS. I don't care. Uh, they expect uh, a, a response within 30 days. If not, uh, then they really get nasty. It's typically, the, 
So people say, well, why am I getting a, a, a 226J? Well, here's the way it works. Typically, a 226J is generated when the IRS has cross-checked individual social security numbers of those who received an advanced premium tax credit. So somebody went down to Covered California, they got an individual plan and they received an, uh, an advanced premium tax credit to pay their premiums, right? And uh, they so they cross-checked those social security numbers of APTC recipients with their employer's uh, tax ID number. Because remember, the employer is filing all these W-2s and, and you've got a hundred or so employees. And, um, and so they, they're, they're, I'm not kidding you, they've got this massive database and they're cross-checking the employer's TIN tax uh, ID number with the individual social security numbers of people that are receiving an APTC. And then that letter that they send them, the 226 letter, it shows the names and the uh, ID numbers of these employees who received an APTC. Also, if the IRS found erroneous information in the form 1094C, in other words, I, I call them coding errors on lines 14 or 15, they can and will generate this same letter with projected penalties. So it's a serious deal. If your client gets a 226J, uh, they need to respond to it and they need, they, they probably need some help. And you as their advisor need to know what's going on. Here. There are a number of other IRS letters. They're directed to employers who typically had filed more than 50 uh, form W-2s in the prior tax year. And so the IRS looks and say, here's ABC, uh, you know, a company in, in Fresno, California, and they filed 75 uh, W-2s last year, they might be an applicable large employer. So they send them a, a different form letter and say, dear Mr. Employer, uh, based on last year's uh, W-2 filings, we believe that you're an applicable large employer and you're required to do the following. And they outline the requirements of the law and it's not pretty. They don't assess them a penalty right then, but they say you may be eligible for penalties if you're not in compliance. And what they do is they check and see if this employer has filed those annual reports. So if they've not filed the annual 1094-1095s, but they've filed more than 50 W-2s, the IRS is gonna uh, say, we're gonna send you this letter because we think you may be doing this and you haven't filed. Uh, they, sometimes they assess employers regardless of size because one of the employees received an advanced premium tax credit. So you might say, well, I'm a small employer, I only have 10 people. One of my employees got an advanced premium tax credit. Well, maybe the, uh, the IRS thinks that you had more than 50 people because they look at your W-2 filings and you had a lot of part-time people during tax season, you're an accountant. And they, and they go, wow, yeah, you file more than uh, 50 W-2s. They don't know that you really only have 10 full-time employees. So they send you this uh, a letter saying, uh, you've got one person here that filed a APTC and you're probably uh, not in compliance. Um, they have asked for proof that the employer had offered affordable coverage that provided minimum uh, value to eligible employees, meaning they want to see a copy of their enrollment packets uh, that, to see, you know, what was really offered to people. 
So it can it can get down in the weeds uh, really quick. Uh, I'll just briefly mention that the Franchise Tax Board, they also send out letters to employers if they think that uh, this went into effect effective January 1st, 2020. So they're now a couple of years into this, but they're 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 collecting these penalties and, and they'll be sending out um, you know letters like that. So the, you know expect that 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 could happen. Some other observations about enforcement: nearly all clients made mistakes in their initial 1094-1095 reports, and the IRS allowed them to correct them without penalty. That has gone away. You know, for about the first three or four years, uh, up until about 2019, uh, they were waiving the penalties because the clients have made mistakes in their filings. But that's gone away. They're, they're, they're not doing that anymore. Uh, clients who ignored the IRS letters were penalized severely, and they could have avoided that by simply responding to the form letter within 30 days. And maybe the response was, I'm in compliance or I'm I disagree with your your fine, and uh, I, I you know I can provide information to support my position here. But but not responding within 30 days, that they start uh, boy the um, it's the fines just multiply. Most solutions, by the way, did not require hiring an attorney or an IRS approved advisor. It was simply a matter of the employer providing information. They made offers, who they made the offers to, and they had proof of these offers in their file. And that's why it's important that they keep copies of employee waivers and that new waivers be collected every year. I know that's a lot of hassle, but you know, it's not a problem to doggone scan these things and just keep them in the employee's file or keep a big file of all the, the scanned waiver forms. The typical legal fee for assistance in responding to an IRS letter run you know 500 to 2500 dollars depending on the complexity of the inquiry so you got to keep your documentation ready uh, for proof of compliance here here we are to polling question number three the final one uh the the and we'd like to know the information presented in this class was very helpful somewhat helpful nothing new or d of little help if you could uh It'd take a minute and uh, answer that polling question, and then uh, I think uh, we're we're doing Q and A's after this, right? Right, Natalie? Yes. Okay. So let's go ahead, and uh, we've got the polling question opened. And do we want to go ahead and start doing Q and A's, or do we have any questions? Let me see. We do have a couple questions. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go to that again. Uh, if you could answer the polling question, you know. Is it very helpful, somewhat helpful, nothing new, or a little help? We'd really appreciate knowing uh, what you think. Okay, so uh, questions and answers. Uh, by the way, if you have offline questions that you want to get into, you can certainly direct them to my attention, Dave at Dickerson-Group.com, or you can call me here at the office, 877-361-7342, extension 13. All right, family, go ahead. Uh, we'll take questions. Okay, we don't have that many, but the first one is, what about small employers? Does the insurance company send 1095 forms with the FTB also? They probably do, yeah, because they're required to send those forms out to uh, anybody that they insure. So, yes, they're going to send them out to employers of all sizes because in their world, you know, they have to comply with that with that law. 
and they have to send out a 1090, uh, uh, 1095B uh, report to each one. Now, remember, in states like California, where they have reenacted the, um, the individual coverage mandate, you need that 1095B when you're filing your taxes as proof that you had coverage. Otherwise, if you don't have that and you file your taxes here in California, uh, they're the Franchise Tax Board is going to come after you and say, you didn't show proof of coverage. And that 1095B is your proof of that. So I may be working for a small employer, but I still need proof that I had coverage because of the individual coverage mandate that we have. Okay? I hope that makes sense. Next question. Could you provide more information regarding ICHRA filing requirements? ICHRA? Is that yes. what you said? Yes. Um, well, to, to be honest with you, and, and, I'm, and I'm not, because I don't do a lot of, I have done any ICHRA plans, uh, and I have a few clients that have done that, so uh, when I looked at the um, when I looked at the instructions that it now included ICHRA filing, um, it you know it it had to do with how much money the employer spent and and whether or not the person you know was offered the coverage and this and that. But it's all it is explained in the instructions. So what I would do if I were you is I would Google uh, ICHRA filing and uh, uh, IRS, and it will probably bring up a link to the instructions for filing that form this year by, by an employer, and uh, that will bring up the instructions. Um, I'm not a CPA, I'm, I'm not a, a tax attorney, so I, I, I honestly can't get into the weeds on what that process is. I just know that they've included that in that form now so that employers who are offering an ICHRA have to report uh, who they're offering it to and, and, and what's going on. That's about the best I can do. Um, but I would, I would Google that online and ask for the instructions for uh, Form 1090, excuse me, 1094, 1094C, 1095C instructions for the year 2020. And um, you'll 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 get 18 pages of information. Okay, uh, how do we do on the uh, the poll? I think uh, are we up on that? Yes, we are. Can I will go ahead and close that right now. Okay, how how do we do? 86% found this webinar very helpful. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, really do. Um, if uh, any other Q and A's, Natalie? Mm, let's see. Actually, no, that was it. Okay. Well, that was again. If you if you got something that comes up and you want to contact me directly, I'm, we're pretty busy right now with fourth quarter stuff. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, you may not may not get me live. It'll may put, put you to my voicemail or uh, same thing with email. But uh, I'll certainly get back to you and, and try to help you. Well, if that's all we have, then I think we'll conclude, all right? Yes, that's actually it. I just want to say thank you for everyone for joining us. Um, of course, if you had, I just want to repeat this because I know a couple of people had a little uh, tech
technology issues with the poll questions. If you have any issues with the poll questions or needed to submit answers, or you want to make sure your answers are correct, go ahead and email me. My email address is natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-C, at dickerson-group.com. And of course, if you have any questions about any of the material presented, I am not the expert, as you can see here. Mr. David Fear is, and of course, that's his contact information. Like I mentioned earlier, you are going to get a thank you email from me within the next 24 to 48 hours, which will include a link to the recording as well as a copy of the slide deck. That being said, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you hopefully next week, Thursday, for our next CE class. Thank yeah. you, everyone, and thank you, Dave, as always, for an amazing presentation. Have a great rest of your Thursday, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.